Welcome to the Dissolve Podcast, Episode 5, A Volcano with Attitude. I'm Scott Tobias, editor of the Dissolve. On today's show, the new concert documentary Metallica Through the Never has us thinking about how the concert film has evolved over time and some of the more unique approaches to the form. I also interview film and TV critic Matt Zollerseitz about his remarkable new book, The Wes Anderson Collection. For the game this week, we'll play a round of Double Vision, where I ask our panelists to distinguish between two movies with many things in common. And finally, we'll close, as always, with our rapid-fire recommendation face-off, 30 Seconds to Sell. Stay tuned, Dissolvers. Nimrod Antal's concert movie Metallica Through the Never opens on IMAX 3D screens across the country today. It's an ambitious attempt to fuse music and performance footage with a fictional narrative about a young roadie sent on a mission through a post-apocalyptic urban landscape. In his essay from the Toronto Film Festival, Noel Murray called it an old-school rock concert film. But next to today's cookie-cutter teen pop documentaries, it sounded downright radical. So we wanted to use this opportunity to talk a little bit about the evolution of the concert movie and some of the more unique approaches to the genre. Joining me are Noel Murray. Hello, Noel. Hello. Uh, Keith Phipps. Hello. And Nathan Rabin. Hello there. Noel, let's start with you. Uh, When you referred to Metallica Through the Never as an old-school concert film, what are the sorts of films you had in mind? Well, I was thinking, I guess, primarily of Led Zeppelin's Song Remains the Same, which has these fantasy sequences that run throughout, taking us inside the heads of the various members of Led Zeppelin. And that was kind of a common tactic of concert films in the 1970s, to have an extra layer of narrative kind of worked into it. Sometimes it was these elaborate fantasy sequences. Uh, Sometimes it was just the way the actual concert itself was structured. Like in the case of something like Neil Young's Rest Never Sleeps, there was uh, the first 10 minutes of the movie is roadies in Jawa costumes building the set, you know, moving these enormous oversized amplifiers into place while Neil Young wakes up on stage and begins the show. So, I mean, I, I, I guess with Metallica, it's just this idea that it can't just be people playing music. There has to be also something kind of trippy going on. But I, it seems like that's kind of, has that disappeared a little bit? I mean, I think at concert movies today, you have you know a little bit of hype, maybe a little bit of bio thrown in there, but an actual narrative uh, is a little, a little harder to find. I kind of appreciate when you see kind of like a, a concert film, a performance film that has something additional. Uh, I think back of, um, there's a Jay-Z documentary about kind of his big uh, performance at Medicine Square Garden called Fade to Black. And one of the things that makes that really interesting is that it has a lot of scenes of him with his producers kind of working on songs. And for a guy like Jay-Z, who's incredibly secretive, incredibly private, you know, this is not incredibly candid, but it's like a little glimpse into his creative process that I think made it more uh, than it would have been otherwise if it was just the music. And I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I tend to like documentaries about music more more than I do performance films because there's so much more to them. So yeah, I kind of I appreciate uh, that extra element uh, that makes I, a, a film distinctive. I think you risk watering it down a little bit. I just watched the uh, LCD Sound System documentary, uh, Shut Up and Play the Hits, this weekend, which is a, a fine, it's a good, it's, it's, a, it's a good film, but it's trying to basically do two things at once, which is, which is be a concert film and also kind of tell the story of why James Murphy decided to pack in LCD Sound System at the height of its fame. And it really ends up doing both pretty well and neither of them great the performance footage is good although it's kind of given that people like spike jones are involved it's kind of odd that that there's not that many 
uh, it often feels like the camera is struggling to find a great camera angle for the performance footage. And the, the footage of like the day after and the footage of him talking to Chuck Kloster leading up to it, it kind of feels like a little contrived. Like they, they've just kind of, they needed that and they had certain certain pegs they needed to fill, like him packing up the gear and everything. And, and I don't know, it just seems like in some ways I, I kind of wish I was just watching an LCD sound system concert film where it was primarily that. And I think, you know, I, I think one thing, you know, I think if, if we were to all list the greatest concert films of all time, I, I, I'm not sure any of us would not have stopped making sense at the top. And that, to me, part of the strength of that film is purely, uh, it's just the music, is the talking heads in concert at or near the height of their powers. Right. I liked uh, the LCD sound system documentary more than you did, I, I believe. Um, but one of the things that I liked about it was it reminded me of Ziggy Stardust and uh, The Spiders from Mars, D.A. Penny Baker's film about the final uh, performance that David Bowie gave as Ziggy Stardust. And one of the things that makes it so interesting is, you know, these scenes of David Bowie preparing, and he seems so normal and bland. Um, he's an actor, basically. So you kind of have the the mundane human being, and then you have this incredible creature who performs in front of, you know, 25,000 people and has them absolutely riveted. So I kind of appreciate that. But yeah, I agree that it can be very, very obnoxious. And, you know, I think kind of the ultimate uh, concert film cliche is, you know, the scenes like, oh my God, I'm so excited to see these people, you know, the, the crowds. Because uh, you, you imagine that if you're going to pay money to go see somebody, you probably like their music. Did Stop Making Sense kind of kill that to a degree? I mean, that I guess that was sort of the novelty of that movie is that you really, I mean, I think you got a little glimpse of the audience from the back of their heads, but right. but you were basically, the idea was to make you a member of the audience, you're watching them, it's mm-hmm. all about what's going on on the stage. I think right. it's the final I'm number, sure. it's only in the final number they cut to any reaction shots and it actually feels earned because you've watched this band work themselves to death on stage uh, for 90 minutes. So to actually show the, the, the crowd responding to it uh, directly feels like they earned it rather than sort of inserting, like sometimes in concert films it can feel like you cut to an audience remember uh, applauding or, or screaming and it just feels like a nudge like you should be just excited too uh, and, uh, and that's a case where it just didn't well I mean to be fair though uh, Stop Making Sense does actually have sort of a structure I mean I mean the actual stage show Talking Heads put on is if not necessarily a narrative it is a carefully crafted choreographed piece where they kind of add one member at a time and then they have the split in the middle and then he comes out with the big suit. I mean, so there's an element of showmanship inherent in the actual show. Got uh, the Tom Club's uh, performance as well, kind of right in the middle. Yeah, so which is something else that is also, I think, uh, interesting about the Metallica film is that the actual Metallica show is kind of amazing. I mean, they've got these enormous props and, and uh, they blow things up on stage and they're they're dodging sniper fire. I mean, I mean it's... <laughs> they're it's, dodging it's, sniper fire? Yeah, they have like little tiny like like LCD lights kind of shooting down at the stage during during one sequence. Well, I, well, what was the purpose of the narrative then in Metallica Through the Never? Is it is it to raise the stakes of what is going on on stage or, or is it give this story some life through the music of Metallica? I don't know. It doesn't really connect to the music all that much and I'm actually not that big of a fan of those sequences. I think I liked it more just because it reminded me of these older concert films. It reminded me of like these ones that were trying to be you know, a midnight movie favorite back in the 70s. So it was more nostalgia than anything else. As for the way they actually look and the way it actually plays out, it's almost more like one of those mega videos from the 90s, you know, back when Guns N' Roses would shoot for two weeks and, you know, spend $3 million, you know, that, or, or Michael Jackson. Or, I mean, it's one of those kind of things where you have a, an army of extras and, and, you know, a huge set. And so, but even that's kind of uh, gone by the wayside. They don't, that's not done quite as much as it used to be. So, you know, that also was kind of a nostalgic feeling. Yeah, well, let me, let me ask you a little bit 
bit more about that. How does a movie like Metallica Through the Never differ, I guess, from the you know the concert videos that were prevalent in the VHS era? Well, the production value, for one. I mean, um, I had a lot of those videos from the 80s in particular, stuff like uh, U2's Under a Blood Red Sky would be a case in point. You know, ones that were actually shot on video with the, whenever the stage lights hit the camera, there's a little streakiness, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's very lo-fi, but really is really more just about the performance. Occasionally, these things would be enhanced with video toaster effects. Uh, kind of, <laughs> kind of, uh, I think most famous... Star there, there's, a, there's a director by the, by the name of Steven Soderbergh, uh, whose first film was a Yes concert video, which is so crazily weird video effecty that it's, uh, I mean, I'm sure he's kind of embarrassed by it now. So yeah, I, I think it's just really more in terms of having, a, a, you know, this is an, a big IMAX movie with great sound and not something that was kind of, you know, three video cameras and a guy with a computer. So are, are there any approaches that you guys favor? I mean, is, is the stop making sense model the, the best way to go about these things? Or is, is there another way of approaching uh, the concert film that, uh, that you would think is just as strong? I don't think there's a right approach, really, to be honest. I, I think stop making sense is a great example of, of one way to do it right. But, you know, it could you know, just as easily, you know, just shooting the the band for for ninety minutes could also go quite poorly, actually. Right. Uh, I, I think the main thing is to understand that you're making a film. One extreme would would be the last waltz, where if Scorsese was you know mapping out shots and choreographing what looked like spontaneous band interplay. Yeah. But I mean, I think one of my least favorite concert films is the Rolling Stones' Let's Spend the Night Together, which is just the most obviously it is in the early '80s, so it's not really the the Rolling Stones in their prime, but. It's just the most indifferent filmmaking that you'll ever see, matched with a, a slightly removed, distant performer. It was a, when the band was getting it along the least. Uh, so, you know, there's not wonderful chemistry on stage, but there's also nothing to capture that. And also tell, tell a story. I mean, I'm not a huge fan, especially like The Last Waltz, I'm not a huge fan uh, of Shine a Light, Scorsese's Rolling Stones documentary, which is just feels like there's no story being told. It's just sort of here is the band as they are now, and, and it feels more like a surprisingly just kind of a very well-made promotional tool rather than a film. Well, and, and that's an argument, too, maybe against the Scorsese style, which is to have everything choreographed, you know, and doesn't feel maybe as spontaneous as it should. Although you know? with Stop Making Sense, everything is incredibly choreographed as well. Um, yeah. And again, I agree with Keith that kind of what you're looking for is something that is cinematic that's something beyond what you would get if you were there at the show or alternately something that recreates the immediacy and the the visceral kind of connection that comes with with seeing live music but yeah i agree there's no perfect or right way to do them and i think with these it's kind of interesting to think of these as these collaborations between these bands but also these filmmakers and i think it's kind of interesting to see well what makes this a martin scorsese movie what makes this a jonathan demi movie as opposed to just a uh, chronicle of music being performed yeah i mean it's interesting you, you you use the word collaboration as well because i think that may play a pretty significant role i mean talk about stop making sense i mean that is so much is as much or more david burns movie as, as jonathan oh, yeah, demi's movie so. in terms of the way that whole uh you know the narrative within the film or the story that the concert is telling unfolds that's david burn are there any we were all doing very much uh, uh, male performers and male groups I'm trying to think of a, of a female performer to uh, performance film to mm. reference but hmm. I, I was, I was going to intercede earlier when you were talking about Stop Making Sense I mean you mentioned it being the end of this era that around that same time was Tom Waits Big Time and Laurie Anderson's Home of the Brave both of which were similar in that they were actually sort of films of a very elaborate show that these people were already staging. Well, you do have your Katy Perry part of me. Yeah, and it's sad at Miley Cyrus, Hannah Montana. It's kind of sad to think that those are two of the only prominent. And also, I'm guessing, well, the two top grossing concert films yes, of all time, yes. if not among them. 
Well, I mean, so do you guys have any like particular approaches you like or old favorites or kind of oddball films that you, you favor in the genre? Well, there's one I wanted to bring up, and this is not really strictly a, a concert film in the traditional sense, but uh, The Kids Are All Right, which is a documentary slash performance film of, of The Who uh, that was made in the late 70s. It just strings together footage from The Who's television performances over the years and some concert footage and a little behind-the-scenes footage, but it's, you know, it's, it goes from the early 60s to you know the late 70s. 70s, um, and it uses pre-existing film, but it's you know it's really well curated. It's like a it's like a museum of great Who performances uh, with very little fat. I mean, there's not a whole lot of you know superfluous stuff. In it. It's all stuff that's either entertaining or it is an amazing performance of a Who song. And I haven't seen that done too often. There was a brief trend a couple of years ago of people putting out DVD sets that collected all the TV performances of bands like The Jam. There's a really great two-DVD two jam set that has all of their BBC performances over the years, which is you know, just terrific. And I think it may be a Bowie one, too, I believe. So, yeah, that, that, that kind of approach to it where you don't just shoot a concert, but you actually tell a story by capturing moments in time over time with a band is one that I, I like a lot. What, what about the rest of you? Um, I, I'm partial to a Jonathan Demme film called Storefront Hitchcock, which is a, a Robin Hitchcock performance that, that is as kind of as simple as it sounds. It's, it's Robin Hitchcock in a, in a small storefront space performing before a very small crowd, and it's sort of appropriately intimate and a nice document of uh, Robin Hitchcock's uh, live act as a solo artist, which was uh, uh, always uh, always fun to see. Yeah, I kind of have a, a couple of D- Neil Young movies another one demi one which is heart of gold but the one i the one i think is kind of abused and misunderstood is the is year of the horse the jim jarmusch crazy horse movie and i think it got some very tough reviews i think it got like a one-star review from roger ebert and i think it was a lot of response to crazy horse being crazy horse and in you know whatever 10 or 12 minute songs of them sort of jamming and throwing their guitar down the stairs and that sort of thing but i also but i also felt like that jarmusch brings the right texture to that film it ha- it feels like a crazy horse film should should feel and you know very much serves serves the band and serves kind of the spirit of that of of that music so i think that one's a little underrated yeah and for me uh, i'm drawing a bit of a blank there just because i tend to perform i love movies about music um but my genre really is not the concert film like i kind of like it when they kind of open things up to kind of just be about the person as opposed to just the music so i'm gonna cite a film that i just saw two days ago uh, called still bill that's about bill withers it's actually a kind of the antithesis of, of a performance film and it's about a guy who is not performing and has not performed uh, or released an album really since 1985 but it's just this really lovely chronicle of uh, a human being and 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 their soul and their life and their journey uh, through the world so um, that's totally cheating uh, and totally off base. But that is a movie that I'm going to highlight. All right. All right, guys. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Nice guy. Matt Solar Sites is one of the best TV and film critics working today. Formerly of the New York Press and founder of the House Next Door blog, Matt currently serves as both the lead TV critic for New York Magazine and editor-in-chief of RogerEbert.com. In 2005, Matt produced a five-part video essay on Wes Anderson for Museum of the Moving Image called Wes Anderson, The Substance of Style. Now that essay has been spun off into the Wes Anderson Collection, a gorgeous hardcover book featuring an introduction by Michael Chabon, beautiful stills and artwork, and in-depth interviews and essays on all seven of Anderson's features. We're happy to have Matt on the podcast. Hi, Matt. Hey, how are you? I'm doing all right. So um, you, you write about this in the preface to the book, but you encountered Wes Anderson's work 
before many others did. Can you talk about the impact that had on you and how your relationship with him started? Well, I was uh, in Dallas at the time. I was just starting out as a, a staff writer at the Dallas Observer, which is the alternative weekly there. And Wes and Owen Wilson and Luke Wilson had made a short film called Bottle Rocket, and it was in a pile of submissions at that year's USA Film Festival. And I was the film critic, and I was reviewing uh, the cassettes. And uh, this particular one jumped out at me because it had a very distinctive style. And, uh, you know, if you've ever judged, uh, short film competitions, you know that that's not always the case. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. The fact that the, that, that these guys were local and they were obviously really, really talented piqued my interest. And so I met with them and I did a, uh, a little piece about them that ran in that issue. And then months later, I revisited it when I heard that they were trying to turn it into a feature. And I ended up, the culmination of all of this was in September of 95, I, I published a, a cover story on the making of Bottle Rocket that followed it from start to finish, including the editing and the eventual preparation for a premiere. So that was sort of the beginning of my relationship with Wes, and we kept in touch somewhat after uh, that movie came out, and I and I moved to New York, and he moved to New York, and then uh, you know he just you you know his story, you know my story. I mean, but uh, I, I've always had a kind of an unusual uh, relationship with Wes compared to other filmmakers that I've met or written about because we were neither of us were famous or even particularly experienced the first time we met so it kind of predates uh, whoever it was we eventually became so how did the book grow out of the video essay you did for museum museum of the moving image uh, Eric Klopfer who is my editor at Abrams books um, contacted me out of the blue a few months after the series ran, and he said he wanted to do a book at Abrams that was somehow about the films of Wes Anderson, and would I be interested in writing it, and would there maybe be some way that we could maybe, if not directly adapt the video essay series, but at least sort of look to it as an inspiration. And, and so that's what we did, and it took a while to kind of put the pieces in place so that we could do it. But I eventually ended up interviewing Wes for the first time in August of 2010, and then I did follow-up interviews in subsequent years, and particularly a big one when Moonrise Kingdom came out, which was not one of his films when we first started work on the book. Uh, so that's that's how that happened. And if, if you've seen the book, you know that it is a lot like the video essay series in a strange way, and that in that that series, the substance of style was doing some side-by-side -side comparisons of Wes's films and some of the films that had maybe uh, influenced him or or affected his style in some way, and we do that a lot too. And we've got you know side-by-side -side comparisons of the Four Hundred Blows and Bottle Rocket or Rushmore, and we've got uh, The Graduate and uh, and Rushmore, and we've got. Um, comparisons of some of the long takes that Wes has done in, for for example, The Royal Tenenbaums and Life Aquatic with films by, uh, for example, Orson Welles or Steven Spielberg. So we get into that. And we also get into some other sort of non-cinematic influences, too. So you know, a book like the Wes Anderson Collection will get comparison to other interview books like Truffaut Hitchcock or the Cameron Crowe, Billy Wilder book. Uh, but this book does have sort of a more personal and con I would say more of a conversational quality to it th than those two. What, what was your um, philosophy? What was your uh, approach and why, why did you choose to, to do it in this way? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I really had a plan for the particular way in which I interviewed him. It was just sort of the way that we talked to each other anyway. And when I would talk to Wes uh, prior to this, there would usually be the kind of typical formalities at the beginning of, hey, what are you working on? What are you up to? That sort of thing. But then quickly the conversation would wander off into other areas. And, and I remember one conversation in particular, it was, I think it was in fall of 1997. We talked for like an hour on the phone uh, about the movies that were out, some of which were quite long, as I remember. And we were talking about which, you know, which movies we considered too long and why we considered a movie too long and what we would cut if we were the sort of god editor of the movie. And probably a half an hour of the conversation was just about that. And and there's a lot of those sort of digressive kind of conversations. I think at one point in the in the book we go off on a tangent about the Steven Spielberg's cloud effects and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which is really not not really germane to anything, but that's what we were discussing, so that that's in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, it's funny you also you you know you talk, talked about the, the length the length of movies uh, because one of the great things about Wes Anderson I, in my view is is his, how concise his films are and how much um, how dense they are and how much kind of emotions he, he's able to pack in a very very small moments I mean you know I mean Rushmore is you know I think I think you, as you, when you were talking to him uh, for this book I mean you were talking it was like he was saying it was like 88 minutes or something before the credits appear I mean that is that kind of a distinguishing feature for him that 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 uh, concision that's one of them uh, although he's informed by a wide range of films and his movies do feel very modern he's not a nostalgia act there is a kind of an old movie quality to the way that he makes films. And, and uh, I remember, oh gosh, about 10 or 15 years ago, I was watching The Third Man again. And I was struck by how The Third Man, which is an incredibly short movie, um, just how much information they were able to, to convey by being selective in what they showed us. And I think Wes's movies have a touch of that. They have that kind of old movie quality. Like, I think of him as somebody who works in an old-fashioned way, even though obviously he's very contemporary in his style. But I think the Coen brothers have a touch of that as well. Um, the Coen brothers uh, and Wes and maybe a few other directors, Woody Allen being one of them, they do sort of pride themselves on not giving you too much. Like they really strive to give you just enough. So how, how did you find? How do you find Anderson as an interview subject? Uh, it, you know, reading the reading the book, he seems much more willing to answer uh, questions of, on process and on on history than it, to entertain ideas about his what his films mean. Uh, it's actually kind of, it kind of becomes funny. You sort of float some theories out there, and his re reaction is often hmm, or yeah, right, yeah. or right. Yeah, well, it's funny. He does resist that. And I think there are some parts where he pretty much says, yeah, that's basically what I was going for. That's pretty much what I believe. But for the most part, he resists it. And that's not to say that necessarily he thinks that a particular theory that I have is right or wrong. It's that his mind doesn't really work that way. I mean, he's he's working on instinct a lot of the time. And, and he's He's like any other artist, I suppose, and that uh, I've interviewed a lot of creative people over the course of my career, and one thing that I've found is always consistent with them is that a lot of times they they mean to do things, but they don't mean to do things. And, and that's an interesting point because, you know, and this is this is something that the documentary about The Shining proved, too, that, you know, filmmakers that you, like Wes Anderson or Stanley Kubrick, that you assume have absolute control over every single detail in their movies uh, still can't really control everything, right? 
No, they really can, and that's certainly a theme in Wes's work. And we talked about that in conjunction with The Life Aquatic, particularly, which is about a filmmaker, specifically a filmmaker who's trying to kind of control the narrative of his own life. And this is something that Wes is very aware of, and he and I get the impression that he doesn't like dwell on it too much, because if you do that, it tends to make you self-conscious as an artist, and then you can't function as effectively. So it was always a tricky balancing act. Like, he doesn't want to... Um, unnecessarily reduce or constrain the meanings of his films and he also doesn't want to uh, think too hard about what he's doing in that way because uh, then you risk sort of turning subtext into text too much so it's complicated it's very complicated I mean honestly it took a year almost a year just to get Wes to agree to to sit for a long interview like this in the first place because he he likes people to react to his work and to interpret his work and not to uh, not to give them the impression that there's a right or a wrong way to interpret anything that he does. You know, uh, Anderson right now is, I think, I guess somewhere in the middle of his career, you know, unlike Truffaut and Wilder when those books were, were done. Uh, have you thought about doing a follow-up down the line? Uh, and if it comes at the end of his career, might, might that change the nature of the interview? I guess. I mean, I can't really see that far ahead. Um, I, I would certainly hope that if he makes two or three more movies and if this book is successful enough to warrant it, that we could maybe do a second edition or something and maybe cover the movies that don't currently exist. And, uh, and I'm also t talking about doing more books of this type with different filmmakers. And I can't get into who exactly I would talk to because it's the, that's sort of not official yet. But, uh, but I, I think there will be at least one, maybe two more books like this. Um, I'm just fascinated with how artists work and how their minds work. And particularly how a style is created over time. Because it's not an intentional thing a lot of the time. Like Some of it is and some of it is, is just incidental. Is it, would the idea of these books be also to kind of make something Kindle-proof? Because, you know, one of the wonderful things about the Wes Anderson collection is that, that you really do want it in physical form. Well, I hope that's the case, and we sort of went back and forth on that. And it's not any kind of a statement that, you know, this is not an e-book. But definitely there is something where, you know, we design this to be a book, like in the way that uh, Wes designs his movies to be movies, you know. Like, it's okay if you watch it on your iPad, but maybe that's not preferable. And I think there is something satisfying about looking through the book and seeing, you know, particular illustrations are huge and galleries of illustrations are laid out in a particular way for a certain reason. And we played around a lot with that. So, yeah, I like that. And I also like the idea of a book, a book about a filmmaker in, in some way trying to convey the personality of that particular filmmaker and not taking a one-size-all sort of approach, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, Matt Seitz, thanks very much for joining us. Thank and, you very much for having me. And best of luck with the book. It's, it's really gorgeous, uh, oh. and, uh, and I think people are really going to like it. Thank you so much. And now it's time for Double Vision, the game where I take two movies with a lot of things in common and ask my fellow dissolvers what detail comes from what movie. The slight twist is that I'll also make things up. So sometimes the answer isn't one movie or the other, but neither. This week, Dante's Peak and Volcano. Two volcano-themed disaster movies that hit theaters in 1997. One featured an intrepid Pierce Brosnan, the other and Haish all covered in soot. Uh, no, bu <laughs> no buzzers are required for this one. Uh, joining me remotely is Matt Singer. Hello, Matt. 
Hi, how's it going, guys? And, and here in the studio, uh, <laughs> we have Nathan Rabin and uh, Tasha hey, Robinson. Hello. Hi there. Okay, let's get started. Gaming hat, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he means go get us a gaming hat because we're still using that Tupperware. T- gaming Tupperware, please. Okay, uh, here we go. Some of Dante's Peak was shot inside the crater of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. Which film went a step further by shooting scenes around an active volcano? This is you, Matt. Mm, I'm going to say neither. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> neither film. That would have been stupid. All right, here we go. This is Tasha. In this movie, a truck crosses a river of lava in order to save a mangy dog on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> I am... I am going to hope that you're making this up and that that does not happen in either film no that happens at dante's peak pierce brosnan and and his family they get in the truck they cross the river of lava their dog is waiting on the other side okay volcano just earned the point in my uh, oh no you got it the clip clip is on youtube i encourage you to check it out it is extremely funny and awesome but is, is the dog okay the that dog, is pretty of important. Of oh, thank God. That would be funny. They, I, wor- they I worry about fictional now dead dogs. All the people die, but that the dog <laughs> drives <laughs> the truck away. The family makes it across, but the dog is the dog is just is uh, on fire when they get reaching. All right. All right. This is a quote. Okay. So hang in there. This is for you, uh, Nathan. All righty. Uh, I move around a lot. Colombia, Guatemala, the Philippines, Mexico, New Zealand, New Guinea, wherever there's a volcano with attitude. I prefer to think of it as a volcano with gratitude. So I, I also uh, like Tasha. Have not seen either of these motion pictures. Unbelievable. I'm gonna go curveball. Joe versus the volcano. No, not a curveball. Which I have seen. There's just there are three choices. All right, all right. Uh, Let me do. uh, Let me do the movie. Boy. Goodness, I was going to say that sounds too cheesy to be in either of these motion pictures, but I think Dante's Peak. Yep, because it has Peak. a cheesier name. Nathan. Yeah, yeah. Was that uttered by uh, Pierce Brosnan? Was that what? Pierce Brosnan, the star of that? Dante's oh, yeah. Peak? No, yeah. That's only could be said by Pierce Brosnan. That man loves he to He carries sing. it. All right, uh, Matt, back to you. Okay. Uh, though both films fell well short of Titanic for the 1997 box office crown. <laughs> What really? <laughs> neither one. I neither one made six hundred million dollars. Uh, which one finished in the top ten? Ooh. Hmm. Don't I you? Am, uh, no, this is searchable. I don't want to hear any clicking keys. My hands are in my pockets. I'm gonna. I'm gonna guess Dante's Peak. No, neither one. Dante's Peak was like twenty third or something. That was that did the best of the two. But uh, uh, they are they they could be called modest successes at best. Both of them. They they cancel each other out. Very modest. Uh, Tasha, this is to you. Which film was first out of the gate? <laughs> the volcano <laughs> gate? Yes. Uh, if you answer neither, neither, that would be totally awesome. <laughs> do, do I get a point for being totally awesome? To, is, is that an option? No, no, it is both? not. Both? Is both an option? Maybe the same weekend. Wow. Is there a movie That's... in which these volcanoes race each other? I would watch I would movie. love to see a movie in which... Is there, Sentient is there one, volcanoes race each other. Is there one where they <laughs> Pixar, race each we're other selling that to, you for to save a scruffy dog? I love that idea. Uh, let's say volcano. No, Dante's Peak. <laughs> da- Dante's <laughs> Peak. That, Come on. Dante's yeah. guessing Obviously. Yep. was just yeah. such a bad strategy at these that, There was no audience left for Volcano after Dante's Peak <laughs> came out. But wasn't Volcano There was, there like was barely the, uh, an audience for Dante's Peak. That was the Roger Corman kind of knockoff lower budget version, was it not? What's that? The Dante's Peak. It was, uh, volcano was like the, the no, no, lower no, that, budget. No, no, no. That was a pretty significant. Both of, both were significant budgeted. 
films. They were not okay. Uh, okay, this is for you, Nathan. All right. This is this is completely in your wheelhouse, by the way. All right. Uh, the director of this film honed his craft on such harrowing disaster movies as L.A. Story, The Bodyguard, and Clean Slate with Dana Carvey. That would be Jean de Bont, uh, if I'm not mistaken. You are mistaken, but uh, mistaken. what's what's the name of the movie? Oh dear Lord, uh, I'm gonna go for Dante's Peak. Uh, no, the volcano. No. This would be Mick Jackson. Mick Jackson. Oh yeah, yeah of course. Mick Jackson. Uh, Roger Donaldson did uh, Dante's Peak. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Duh. You know what you can get a point for is uh, reprising. Just before the podcast, you were singing moves like Jagger. Can I give us a moves like, wait, what was his name again? Mick Jackson. (laughs) Moves like Mick Jackson. There we go. He's dancing. He's chair dancing. Give him a point. I'm actually at an incredible moonwalk as I say this. What's the score, by the way? We, do we have? Uh, has anyone scored anything? So yeah, this, um, we're not instituting the Scott Tobias rule, despite me hosting. So so nobody's nobody's getting points off for this because you know we're, we're nobody's bu- nobody's buzzing in, so it doesn't make any sense. Under that non-rule, the score is currently Matt and Nathan tied at one, and Tasha has nothing. Nothing in my <laughs> life. Nothing at all. Uh, and so this is this is for Matt. Uh, this is a quote. Um, okay, the quote is: "It's fourth and fifteen, and you're looking at a full court." <laughs> it's fourth and fifteen, and you're looking at a full court press. Is the quote? I think that's from the Naked Gun. <laughs> Actually, from that is either. that is uh, that is correct. You you are. It is neither. the The answer is uh, that quote is from the Naked Gun. But I think it's, I actually do think it's ludicrous enough to make either of these movies. So I thought I would give it a shot. Do I get a bonus point for knowing that it actually. <laughs> No, no, you specifically do not get a bonus point. Uh, But but you do get a point, which puts you in the lead. Tasha, come on. (laughs) Coming up from behind like a a bunch of really slow lava. Okay. Twister was released the year before. Uh, And just as Twister followed Tornado Chasers, uh, this movie follows a volcanologist. I, I believe that we know from Buffy the Vampire Slayer that they're referred to as volcanologists. <laughs> volcanologist. Oh, I, I'm sorry. That was a question? That, yes. This, <laughs> that, this by you was by way of a question? I'm asking you, which movie has a volcanologist? I'm going to go with Volcano. No. Dante's Peak. Dante's Peak. The clue is in the quote. The guy, the guy was all over the place uh, where there was volcanoes with attitude. No, no casual, uh, no casual volcano. Wait, wait you're telling me that that Pierce Brosnan, World Traveler, is a volcanologist? He's a volcanologist. So he fought Spock at some point. <laughs> I'm very confused. <laughs> oh, Tasha, still, still sitting at zero, aren't you? Uh. Nathan, this is for you. Which film features a performance by a 15-year-old Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Oh my goodness. Uh, well, let's see. Volcano soars with impressive special effects. Um, <laughs> But it seems like Dante's Peak might actually feature a performance by a young 15-year-old uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Correct. Yeah. Dante's Ooh. Peak. So we're, we're nodded it to a piece. I think it was the final round, right? Oh, my gosh. Pressure is on you, Matt Singer. I'm short a question. Uh, so I'm going to – so Tasha is eliminated anyway. I'm going to <laughs> her entirely. I demand that you make up Due, due to me not right being now. able to count. And, uh, and so, it's, so, it's, so it's a face-off. Between Ask me which one of the two titles starts with a D. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Tasha. Next time we'll we'll come up with two films that you've seen, but 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 Nathan <laughs> has not seen either seen. of these films either. Yeah, no, I know I've not. And, and I've, I've literally just guessed Dante's Peak every time. <laughs> and it's always B. That's the key to strategy. <laughs> right, I, for, I forgot make, to come up with clues proud. from I'm, Volcano. I'm, I'm rooting for uh, Nathan here. All right, this is another quote. <laughs> Not from the naked gun. Uh, when Mount St. Helens blew, the force was 27,000 times greater than the Hiroshima bomb. 
Nathan Raven. I'm going to say Dante's Peak. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. French too far. Right, this is this is uh, this last one is from Matt Singer. This is for all the uh, what for it, all the, the marbles. Wait, was it volcano or neither? It was volcano. Okay. No. That was uh, that would been an hache, a soot covered and hache. Mm. Very. I, I didn't is. remember that movie having dialogue, so that's good. Uh, and so this is a this is a tagline, Matt Singer. This is a tagline. There are 1,500 active volcanoes that we know about, and one we don't. Wait, what? <laughs> so you're asking which movie is that the tagline of? Correct. Well, I know Volcano was the, the coast is toast, so it could, has to be Dante's Peak or neither. So I am going to guess uh, Dante's Peak. No, Volcano. How about that? I, d- I decided no! not to go with the coast is toast. Oh, my goodness. I, I didn't want to give it away. So I went with the, I went with the, the, the uh, other tagline for Volcano. Oh. So... Two uh, so I, I don't have. I really don't have a uh, <laughs> a, a tiebreaker here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna declare you you and Nathan the winner. Yay! And and t- well, actually, I'm you know gonna what? I'm gonna declare myself decla- the winner. I'm gonna I'm I, I think that's a better. I think that's a clear thing. What to are declare. you not declaring? Having been the only Scott person Tavares. to see both of those movies, I'm declaring myself the loser. Oh man, no. I've, seen them, I've seen them too. I think Dante's Peak is the one you return to because it's the worst of the two, but also the the more entertaining. What do you think? I would agree with that assessment, yes. Okay. Maybe we'll link to the uh, lava stream crossing scene <laughs> on the page. So, so we'll give you a reason to come to the And dissolve. the dog's personal uh, page to make sure that he's okay. Because I'm very worried yeah. about this and I, and I think that the, you may argue with me about the whole mangy part. I think that was a little that was a little bit it's of color on my part. It's a nice dog. dog's in makeup. I mean, come it's on. It's a nice dog. You know, the, the dog, the dog was going for the scruffy look yeah. you know, it to had, win an Oscar. It had kind of like a Michael Madsen thing going on. That's what the dog was going for. All right. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Tasha. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I'm not thanking you for this one. <laughs> and now we've reached 30 Seconds to Sell. We're in Noel Murray. Hello, Noel. Hello. And Tasha Robinson. Hello, Hi, Tasha. Have 30 seconds to convince me to buy the recommendation, whether it's for a film, a soundtrack, an idea, a vibe, whatever. Uh, so let's let's start with you, Noel. Ready? Go. Yes. I have a book by Robert Sellers called Very Naughty Boys, The Amazing True Story of Handmade Films. It's about the uh, British film company that George Harrison uh, co-founded to help uh, release Life of Brian back in the late 70s and then continued and released films like Mona Lisa, With Nail and I, Time Bandits, uh, ultimately had a disastrous uh, situation with Shanghai Surprise. It's a fascinating book about uh, a time period in the UK when the film industry wasn't that vibrant and how a few people tried to save it. And it's a very entertaining read. Oh my gosh. 30 seconds on the button. Good job, Noel. Tasha, are you ready? Yes, I am. Go. I'm recommending the new release Short Term 12 from writer-director Destin Cretton, based on his experience working at a group home for troubled or abandoned kids. It stars Brie Larson from United States of Terror in a fantastic performance as a former abuse victim recovering by helping other abuse victims. And the film alternates between her story and theirs while using both to inform each other and without shortchanging either one. This is a meticulously crafted, highly intelligent film and one of the year's most emotionally moving dramas. It's one of my top 10 for 2013 so far. I urge everyone to catch it while it's still in theaters. Oh, right. Under the wire. Wow, those are both very strong recommendations. And this is an arbitrary choice on my part. Sometimes it's clear. Oh, no, no. It's it's highly, highly uh, crafted, highly scientific. Uh, you talk any, If you say another word, you're not getting that. Um, <laughs> I think I'm going to go with Tasha on this one. I, I really want to oh. see Short Term 12. Yeah. And I really, I, I, have, I have no interest in that book. No. <laughs> <laughs> D- damn you for recommending it. Nothing scientific. <laughs> All right, thanks. Thanks very much. That does it for episode five of the Dissolve podcast. 
Please join us in two weeks for more opinions, insight, and general tomfoolery. In the meantime, you can enjoy The Dissolve in Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, and website form. The Dissolve podcast is produced by Genevieve Kosky with assistance from Colin Griffith and Tess Berry. And if you want to sound off about the concert films we omitted, that's what the comment section is for. Go! Go now! Go now!